Take your Bible and look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or you may find the text in your bulletin, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I will be working through this text over the next uh, number of weeks, anywhere from three to five weeks. We'll see how that goes. But what I want to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is what I call the gospel integrity of the local church. The subtitle of that would be the privilege and responsibility of church membership. When I talk about gospel integrity, let me explain what I mean. Integrity is simply being honest. It's holding to the principles, the morals, the ethics that you claim to believe. That's integrity. Gospel integrity is being honest about your commitment to grow in God's saving grace and to experience the transformation of that saving grace. This is gospel integrity. When you become part of a local church, and I realize some of you are not church members, and this series of messages will do one of two things. It will encourage you to become a church member, or will say to you, no, I cannot commit to that kind of gospel integrity. Now the intent is, of course, for you to say, no, that's what I want. That's what God wants. I want an honest commitment to live as a Christian ought to live. And I want to be accountable to that commitment within the context of a local church. When I talk about saving grace and transforming grace, I'm thinking of what Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2 when he says this in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that grace teaches us to pursue godliness, that that is the consequence of the reality of God's grace in our life. This is gospel integrity, experiencing grace day by day to be transformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. When you become a member of a church, and especially Grace Church, you make certain commitments, you make certain affirmations. You heard them last week. You were asked about whether, whether or not you believe the Bible as the infallible word of God. You were asked about whether you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in need of God's sovereign mercy. You were asked about whether you believe that salvation is in and through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
alone. But then you are asked this, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And then in the sixth commitment, you say this, you answer to this, do you submit yourself to the government and the discipline of the church and promise to uphold its purity and its peace. Being a church member is a privilege and it is a responsibility. It's a privilege that you get to share gospel integrity with a group of God's church gathered in a particular locality. That is a privilege. And it's also a responsibility, a responsibility that you will uphold and maintain that gospel integrity by confessing your sin, forsaking your sin, and rebuking those who will not confess their sin and forsake their sin. It is a privilege and a responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 5, we will look at a church in which gospel integrity is being threatened in so many ways. We are looking at one of those ways in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, the threat is twofold. We have the ongoing public sin of a church member. And then secondly, it is threatened by the church's toleration of that sin, the church's pride in not wanting to do anything about the presence of sin in their church. Listen to our text this morning. I will read each week the entire text, though this morning I probably won't get past verse 1. But listen to 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit and as if present. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here's the situation at Corinth. There's a professing believer who is having ongoing sexual relationships with his stepmother. Some would say his mother. The Greek could go either way. Paul, in his rebuke, simply affirms the biblical teaching on sexual immorality, that all sex outside of a heterogeneous, monogamous, covenant marriage relationship is sin. And so Paul condemns it. But he not only condemns the sexual immorality, he condemns the fact that they have even become, he has even become worse than the world. It's of a kind, he says, that, that even heathens look down on. In his apostolic authority, Paul gives strong directives to the church. They may sound harsh, but Paul's concern is gospel integrity of the church, the purity of the church. He's more concerned about the purity of the church than he is about someone's feelings or someone's status in the church or their false claim to be free to live as they want. If you listen to his words, they're strong. Look again in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 5. Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Verse 10, you're not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, etc. And then verse 12, purge the evil person from among you. Now sometimes I hear people say, well, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. I don't like the way Paul talks about women. I don't like the way Paul talks about morality. I, I like Jesus, but not Paul. But if you read your Bible, you understand that Paul only takes the seed thought that Jesus taught in the Gospels and expands on it. Paul is never in conflict with Jesus. Matter of fact, when you read Matthew 18, when Jesus is discussing an unrepentant brother who has sinned, Jesus put it this way. 
He says, if he, the unrepentant brother, refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be unto you as a heathen, as a Gentile, and as a tax collector. Jesus essentially says, if someone says he's a Christian and won't repent of sin, put him out of the church fellowship and treat him as if he was an unbeliever because... He is living like an unbeliever. Now, how do we treat unbelievers? In one of the later messages, I will expand on this a little bit more. But just up front to know that when Jesus says, treat that sinning, unrepentant brother as an unbeliever, he means this. First of all, we love unbelievers. We love unbelievers. So even a sinning brother, we don't hate him because he's sinning and unrepentant. We continue to love him. Secondly, we call unbelievers to repentance and call them to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. And that's what we continue to do with those who say, I'm a Christian, but keep on sinning. We call them to repentance and surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Thirdly, we do not welcome unbelievers to church membership. Fourthly, we do not welcome unbelievers to serve in capacities that only Christians should serve in. And fifthly, we don't welcome unbelievers to the Lord's table, to this place of communion with Christ and with the people of God. You hear almost every week the invitation, if you know Christ, come to the table. If you're truly a believer, come to the table. But if you're not a a believer or not living like a believer, then this table is not for you. As we look at this text over the next few weeks, I want to focus on how we can maintain the gospel integrity that is at the heart of church membership. How do we do that? And one of the ways we do that in the first five verses is we must continue to fight the enemies of gospel integrity. If we are not alert, if we, we are not con committed to battle sin and to fight those things which Satan wants to use to destroy the testimony of his church, the gospel integrity of the church, then we will lose the battle and the Corinthian church here is losing the battle. They are not fighting sin. We must fight the enemies of gospel integrity. Look again at verse 1 with me. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. The gospel integrity of the Corinthian church is being disrupted. It's being destroyed. One by a man who says, I can keep on sinning. And two, by a church that says, 
we're not going to do anything about it. Now, commentators uh, hypothesize as to why they didn't do anything about it. Some would say it's, it's unthinkable that a church uh, would, would, would see this kind of sin and approve of it, that they actually think that it's right. Uh, and so they say that you know, probably what's happening is that this man is a man of status, he's a man of power, you know, and maybe he puts a lot of money in the offering plate, maybe he has a lot of influence, and so even though they are against the sin theoretically, they don't want to deal with it because of the cost they might see involved. That may be true, the text doesn't tell us that. The text simply tells us we have a man who says he's a Christian who is having a sexual relationship with either his mother or his stepmother and the church is accommodating that and doing nothing about it. I imagine Paul as he writes this letter he sort of writes with his mouth aghast, wide open, somewhat shocked. Shocked that a believer is not only has done this, that's not the major shock. The major shock is that it's ongoing. It's not a believer who fell into a moment of sin. It's a believer who fell into that moment and stayed in that moment and defends that moment of sin. And then a church that says, we're not going to do anything about it. The phrase in verse 1, has his father's wife, literally is, is continually having his father's wife. It's not simply that he committed an act of immorality. Let me say that there is no Christian who is exempt from that possibility. And many Christians have given in. In a moment of weakness, a moment of where lust had been filling the mind and the opportunity became real in life and they gave in, many Christians have given in to immorality. But if you're truly a Christian and the Spirit of God is living in your life, he brings that deep conviction. It may take a year like David where David did not confess his sin with Bathsheba and he tells us how he was tortured lying in his bed at night as the Spirit of God was convicting him and, 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 and the guilt of his sin was destroying him. But he came to repentance. It's not simply that he committed this act of immorality, but that he continues this act of immorality without repentance, and the church tolerates it. And let me say that's an important distinction, because we all know that the church is not a family of perfect people. We all sin in one way or another. We all in some way, at least privately and personally, violate gospel integrity. John put it this way. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if 
we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. As a Christian, we live lives of repenting and confessing. God, I shouldn't have thought that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I shouldn't have neglected to do what was right. We live lives of repenting and confessing and forsaking sin. There's no perfection in the local church. But the problem again with this man was that he was not confessing and forsaking his sin, but rather he was practicing this sin as a lifestyle. And when you do that, the same writer, John, who talked about us confessing our sin, the same writer tells us that if you practice sin, then there's a big question mark over your life as to whether or not you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. John put it this way in John, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either not seen him or does not know him. John says if you can sin and sin and sin without confession and repentance and forsaking, then there's a good possibility that you are not a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul can say if someone is living like an unbeliever, then put them out of the church as you would an unbeliever. Now, I know others, some would object and say, well, my sin is, it's personal. It's between me and God. And my reply is, yes, all sin is somewhat personal. It's between you and God. And sometimes personal sin is private sin. That is, no one else knows about it. And we all have that, and hopefully we've confessed it and forsaken it. But sometimes personal sin becomes public. As Paul says, it's now commonly reported among you. And when personal sin becomes public, that sin becomes an enemy of the gospel integrity of a local church. When I read this text, I find three implications about uh, the, the nature of the sin that this man was committed. First of all, it was a sin that's clearly defined in scripture. Immorality, or later he'll say greed, idolatry. These are things that the Bible clearly says, this is wrong. There's no give and take in that. Immorality is wrong. Greed is wrong. Idolatry is wrong. So it's a sin that is clearly defined. Secondly, it's a sin in which 
It is being practiced without repentance and without turning away. A man is constantly having his father's wife. And then thirdly, it's a sin that is known by others. It is public. It is actually being reported. My sin becomes a threat to the gospel integrity of a church. One, when it's clearly sin, when the Bible says it's sin. Secondly, when it's being practiced and I refuse to repent and turn from it. And thirdly, when it's known. Now, it's very possible that even today, someone could be sitting here with personal sin that's private. You may have a hidden private life as a drunkard. Maybe you uh, get wasted at clubs and bars on the weekend and you have your own little life apart from the, from the church. No one really knows this part of your life but one day you get into a car and you get into an accident and the police come and you get a DUI and you end up in the hospital and your pastor comes to visit you and you say pastor I've been living as a hypocrite I have a private life, I get drunk, I party, and I got in my car, got in an accident, I shouldn't have been driving, shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been drunk. And I'm sorry, and I don't want this life. I don't want it. I want God to forgive me and I want grace. If I can't drink moderately, then I want grace to not drink at all. But I don't want this. And a good pastor will pray with him and disciple with him and hold him accountable. And it's not a threat to the gospel integrity of the church because there's repentance. But if the man says, this is none of your business. What I do in my own time, what I do in my private life, that's none of your business. But the problem is, it's not private, it's public. It's known that you're a drunkard. Now, what kind of drunkard will you be? Will you be a, a Christian drunkard who repents and forsakes it and seeks help to get victory? Or will you be one who defends their sin because they're committed to sin and not to grace? This is Paul's point. Someone who is not repentant, who is not committed to a life, who is, who is committed to a lifestyle contrary to scripture, should not be welcomed into Christian fellowship, should not be considered as a brother. And there's good reasons for that. One of the reasons is that it, if we don't do that, we diminish the value of our 
biblical promises our covenant with each other that we will follow Jesus Christ by the grace of God that we will pursue the purity and the peace of the church and the way we do that is not by living lives of perfection the way we do that is by acknowledging our sin and confessing our sin and forsaking our sin But another reason we need to hold to Paul's standard is it's good for the offender. Because I don't help you as a Christian if I approve or overlook those things that I know will destroy your life because sin will destroy your life. And so it's not good for you to not face rebuke and discipline if necessary. Paul says so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And later he will tell us, and I will talk about that later, but later he will talk about the infectious nature of sin. That if you tolerate this, then... Who else will say, well, look at brother so-and-so. He's doing this and the church seems to accept it. So I guess it's okay. <clears throat> as I've thought about this text and thought about its application to us as well as the church in America, I uh, conclude that the church in America is not doing well in fighting the enemy of what I call accommodation to unbiblical standards of morality. We're not doing well. We can see this on a large scale, on, on the extreme, with you know, wholesale denominations who now accept LGBTQ plus and whatever else there is. And some have opposed it so deeply that even the Anglican Church and the United Methodist Church are splitting over that issue because there are still some who believe the Bible in those denominations who say, no, the Bible says this is wrong. But if we don't wholesale accept it, then most churches have been silenced by fear, fear of rejection, fear of persecution. But don't get me wrong, LGBTQ plus is not the beginning of the problem and not the real problem. Because before they were ever issues, the church had already surrendered and given in to the sexual revolution of the mid-20th century, which is where I basically grew up, casting aside all moral restraints under the cry of freedom. We know that in most churches today, reserving sexual activity for marriage alone was discarded a long time ago. 
Before a church ever surrendered to LGBTQ plus issues, it already had a weak view of marriage, a weak view of divorce, a weak view of adultery, and a weak view of premarital sex. Barna's research today tells us that only 41% of practicing Christians would object to two young people cohabitating, living together sexually before marriage. Only 41% of practicing Christians. That means that 59% would approve of something like that. And if you look at the history of decline, the decline of culture, and how the church has accommodated culture, some of us are what they call boomers, you know, those who were born between 1944 and 1964. Others are called Generation X, born between 1965 and 1979. Many of you are millennials, born between 1980 and 1994. And then we have the Generation Z, born between 1995 and 20, uh, 2015. And what I find striking is when you go from the boomers to the Generation Z, you see this decline in society on moral issues. There's this sharp moral decline. And the church follows the same pattern that it is more likely today that a boomer like me would still have a problem with sex outside of marriage because the Bible says so, whereas a generation X or a generation Z or a millennial has been so influenced by the culture that they're in that they are less likely to condemn that. They are more open to accept those sorts of things. And this is the world we're living in. And we can attribute the decline in society both to the influence of Hollywood, to our educational system, to uh, the popular media that is out there. We, we are in un, inundated. I like what Al Mohler says about public education. He says, no moral revolution can succeed without shaping and changing the minds of young people and children. Inevitably, the schools have become crucial battlegrounds for the culture war. The Christian worldview has been undermined by pervasive curricula that teach moral relativism, reduce moral commitments to personal values, and promote homosexuality as a legitimate and attractive lifestyle option. And he's right. They start with kindergartners. We saw this when I was in Brooklyn 20 years ago. You know about a, a child growing up with two mothers. Uh, 
it's the indoctrination that begins to, to take place. And it's not just the public school system. It certainly is Hollywood. I don't know how many shows I have to say I'm not watching that anymore because I don't like where it's gone. If you were to go back in the 1930s, Hollywood actually had a, a code of ethics, a production code, they called it. And it said something like this. This is a quote. No picture will be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it. Hence, the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown aside to crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. Correct standards of life should be presented on the screen, subject only to necessary dramatic contrast. Law, natural or human law, should not be ridiculed, nor should sympathy be created for its violation. Now, that's not the Hollywood you and I know. These are not the standards of the 21st century. And let me say, I like a good movie. And a good movie or a good book is one that is presented in such a way that you are drawn in emotionally, vicariously. You are drawn into that. And so when I watch a movie, I like to sympathize. I, wanna, I want to cry. I want to laugh. Sometimes I experience the fear. I want to have the hope. That's a good movie that draws you in. But sometimes... When we are drawn in, we are drawn into things that we should reject as believers, such as the passions of sex and of hate and of revenge and of violence and the false ideals of power and money. A good movie will draw you into that sex scene where you will enjoy it and vicariously be there and you will sin when you do that. But this happens so often and we give in so often that the decline of culture is now reflected in the church. So that we are, as someone said, in a cultural war, but we must get this straight. We fight this war by pursuing gospel integrity, not by changing culture. We fight this war by being the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's concern is not that the Corinthian society is so perverse, and it was. You can go back and read Cicero's description of, of first century Corinth and see how vile and wicked it was, that there were sacred prostitutes, there were temples that, that promoted sexual immorality. This is, this is uh, not new information, but Paul's concern is not that the world out there is so bad. He doesn't have an advertising campaign, some edu new educational initiative to try to change the Corinthian society. 
His method is we engage in cultural war by the integrity, the gospel integrity that we live out in our lives and we live out in the church. And it's not to say that politics aren't important and education and media aren't important and that you should do what you could to bring Christian influence into them. But Paul, make no mistake, Paul had no idea that any of those things had the power to change the mind and heart and the true values of people. He believed that the gospel was the only answer. And he said, when I came to Corinth, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I talked to the Greeks and the Greeks said, you know, give us something that's wise. And when I talked to the Jews and the Jews said, show us some powerful sign to convince us. Paul said, I simply preached Christ. He is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. The church should be a moral society that is better than the world. The Corinthian church was not only as bad as the world, it was worse in what they were doing. But the church should be a sacred society of people that is morally better than the world. Again, we're in a cultural war but we fight it by pursuing gospel integrity, by living out that grace of God that trains us and teaches us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue holiness in our life. In a few moments, we will come to the Lord's table to acknowledge our need of grace. Grace to forgive our sin. Grace to fight the sin that plagues us. When we come to the table, we come with hearts of repentance, seeking God's grace to be the church that he wants us to be. That church which Christ loved and gave himself for that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water, by the word that we might be without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. That's what Christ wants for his church. But when you come to the table today, I want you to think about that personal yet private sin of yours. The one that you cherish, the one that you toy with, the one that you have not repented of and are not repenting of and are not forsaking. I want you to think of that sin and come to the table today with a heart of repentance. Otherwise, remember the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. 
He said, what you've done in secret will be shouted from the housetops. And I think of that and I, I shudder. I don't want you to know the worst of me. God knows the worst of me. And the only way for it not to be shouted from the housetops is to confess it and to repent and forsake and have it cleansed and it's gone. As the writer of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. God wants you to find mercy this morning. Let's pray together, shall we? And would you, quietly before the Lord and the quietness of your heart, repent, confess, seek grace to forsake, that today you can come to this table with a heart of repentance. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God, your Holy Spirit, would in these moments show us our sin and show us your grace that is greater than all of our sin. Speak to all of our hearts that we might come to this table today with hearts of repentance. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.